Lord, these are glorious truths to sing about. Our victory is in you, Christ. You alone defeated sin on our behalf. You alone defeated death on our behalf. You alone fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law that God requires from all humanity on our behalf. We stand alone. We stand justified in you. Our sanctification is ultimately completed in you. Our hope is grounded in you and all that you have done and every promise that in you is yes and amen. And these are glorious, glorious promises. But to overcome, as the song speaks about, which comes from your word, particularly in Revelation, means to overcome the adversities, to overcome those things that threaten our soul, to overcome those things that are designed by the evil one to destroy our faith and to destroy your work and your people. But what is sure is that though we are weak, in you we are strong. And though we often may fail in and of ourselves, ultimately, as again we sing, the victory rests in your completed work on our behalf. And for that, we offer you praise and thanksgiving. And we ask you now by your spirit to teach us from your word, encourage us, instruct us, do everything that you've designed your word to do this morning in us by your spirit. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes again as we continue to work through this tremendous uh, Old Testament book, a favorite of many. Uh, we come this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, before I begin uh, the message this morning, I just want to make the two quick notes, uh, announcements, now that uh, most everyone is here. Uh, one is, if you haven't responded already about the membership class, many have, but if you haven't, uh, then go ahead and please uh, email me. I want to get a date on the calendar for that soon. And also, if you have not been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, that means since you've come to a genuine and repentant faith evident in your life, if you've not given testimony to that in the waters of baptism, then uh, that's something that you need to do. And I want to encourage you as well uh, to contact me on that as well. And uh, we'll set up a date to have a baptism class and then schedule a service. With that being said, I hope that you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 15. And let me introduce the passage this way. As, um, this will be no shock to you. Uh, but our culture, as a reflection of our fallenness, often has uh, the self-delusion of being in control. I mean, we could say our culture, but really that's humanity. Uh, it's a part, again, of our fallenness, is this idea that we are in control, that we somehow are the determiners of our fate, that we somehow are the ones who are in control of the moments and the days of our lives. Uh, this idea was clearly stated in a poem. Y'all will be familiar with uh, this part of the poem. The poem was by Invectus, is the name of the, of the poem. It was written by a guy named William Ernest Henley, in which he famously wrote this. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll, can you finish the rest? I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's a bold proclamation of uh, essentially omnipotence over his life. Interestingly, he wrote that poem after he had, I think it was his foot amputated from some complications with tuberculosis, and he ended up dying at the young age of 53. I doubt very seriously that when he wrote that poem, he planned on dying at the age of 53, that he's the one who determined he would get tuberculosis and have his foot loss or any of the other events in his life. It's a kind of a sad silliness, really, that kind of idea. 
He was subjected to forces outside of himself. Ultimately, he was subjected to the will of God for his life that he, as far as we know, never acknowledged to the end. And although all of life and all of history, just as in the life of William Henley, shouts to us that we are not in control, that is a persistent lie that we try to tell ourselves, that we somehow are in control. And I think this is heightened in some ways, you would agree, I imagine, with the technology. We have so many things that we can do. I'm still amazed. I, I was just the other day, I, I had a... I don't even remember what it was, but a question, and I'm walking from the church over to the parsonage, and I just pull out my phone, and I say, hey, Siri, and I ask a question, and I have an answer. We can find out the weather. We can get directions to wherever we want. We can do amazing things with the technology that we have, and there is this sense that we are in control. They call for doctors with all of our advanced knowledge in medicine who sometimes have a God complex, as though they are ultimately the ones that are the healers. We're very thankful for medicine and brilliant doctors and all of those things, but they're not in control. You're not in control. I'm not in control, ultimately. We do make decisions, and our decisions have consequences. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap from the flesh. If we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap from the Spirit. But at the end of the day, the circumstances of our lives, the, the opportunities that we have, the results of the things that we do, the very macro events of the culture and of the world are completely out of our control. We respond to what is brought our way. So again, we have real choices and we have real consequences, but we live under the hand of God who rules over creation. Nothing threatens his rule over creation. For those who know him, that means his rule is good in the sense that we experience a goodness of it in our life spiritually as we're shaped and formed into the image and likeness of Christ. God causes all things to work together for good, the blessings and the trials, as we just sang about. For the wicked, it means that it is a warning that the end is that the God who gave you life, who rules your life, will call your life to account in judgment. And so in Psalm 2, we remember that to the wicked who think that they stand in control and can live a part of God, what does he do? He, he who sits in the heavens, do you remember? What does he do? He laughs at them. He laughs at them. He says, I have an appointed kingdom that I will give to my son. He is the one who rules over the nations with a rod of iron. He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is unchallenged in his supreme sovereignty. So, but the reality is that we do not know what life is going to bring our way, why things work out the way we do, they do, and we're never going to figure out the details this side of heaven. Therefore, it is our wisdom and it is also our joy and our happiness and our goodness to live under the sovereignty of God with fear, faith, and obedience, to fear God to trust him and to obey him in whatever circumstances we have. And that's really the theme of Solomon this morning in verses 1 through 15 of Ecclesiastes 3. If I were to summarize it, I'd put it this way, that wisdom rests by faith and the fear of God in the face of life's mysteries. To be wise in God's eyes is to live by faith, to trust him, what he's revealed about himself, what he's revealed about himself and for us to do, and to fear him, to reverence him, to fear sin, to honor him in all of the mysteries and the uncertainties of life. So we'll look at this under just two broad headings. One is to understand that life is predictably unpredictable. And secondly is to trust God in the mysteries of life. Let me read verses 1 through 15 and then we'll look at these. Beginning in verse 1. 
there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I've seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves, and he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has already, has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks that or what has passed by. Contains some of the most familiar words in Scripture, precious words that remind us of God's sovereignty over time and over our lives. Go back to verse 1, if you will, and we'll look first then to understand Solomon's wisdom is that, uh, to understand that life is predictably unpredictable. It is predictably unpredictable. He begins again with to say, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event or for every matter or for every happening under the sun or under, excuse me, under heaven. Simply put, our lives are under the sovereign hand of God. Under the sovereign hand of God. Now, you may have, as we were reading through that, if you're like me, I've unfortunately have had this song stuck in my head, and I did a stupid thing like I went to YouTube and listened to it. Again, that didn't help matters. But many of y'all will remember the song from the group The Birds in the 60s, To Everything. Turn. Okay, don't, let's, we'll stop. To everything, turn, turn, turn. They popularized the, they gave it a, a different twist than what Solomon did here, but they essentially, that song is the lyrics drawn directly from this passage uh, in Scripture. It was actually written earlier, I, I learned this, by a folk singer in the 50s, Peter's, I think, Seger or something like that was his name. They popularized it. But it, in that song, and here in, or at least here in Solomon's, the, the point is to realize that there is, in fact, a time for everything. There is a time for everything, and there's an appropriateness to all of the events of life. And he, the idea here is, in this poem, is to give us a sense of the completeness of God's work in our life, the completeness of God's work, not only in our life, but really in all of creation. 
Uh, just for a point of interest, not so much a point of interest, actually to help you so you can notice these things, he uses a literary device here, and if some of those who remember from our hermeneutics class, the guys anyway, will remember it's called a Maryism, and a Maryism is, is a literary device that states two opposite extremes to emphasize completeness, to emphasize both those things stated, but everything in between as well. So sometimes God is the ruler of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth and everything in between. It's a, it's the, he's a ruler over everything that he has made. And that's what Solomon does here is he's going to give us a series of opposites, a series of opposites meant to impress upon us the completeness and the wholeness of God's rule over all that he has made. And remember, this fits in, which we'll mention uh, in a bit, Solomon's quest to try to find out meaning, to try to understand purpose, to try to know how to live, or what he learns anyway, is how to live under God's hand, how to live in God's creation in light of things that um, are outside of our control. Before we got to the section, he tried to do that through finding satisfaction in everything that creation could offer. And he realized there was nothing there. Satisfaction is to live again under the sovereign hand of God, to live obediently. Here he looks at it from another angle, although he's pursuing the same question, is how am I to live in light of the fact that life is unpredictable and unpredictably governed by God? Now, in one sense, this reality reveals to us, this poem anyway, what he's going to emphasize, that life is always in flux. Everything is temporary. Nothing is certain. Things are always subject to change. If there's one thing we know about life, things are always subject to change. And that, that certainly is one sense that comes from this, first, this initial poem anyway. In another sense, it shows that no one experience then should be determinative of our outlook of the whole of life. In other words, life is going to be full of grief, but it's also full of joys. Life is going to be full of blessings, but it's also going to be full of trials and challenges. But all of that is a part of the ever-changing and moving dynamic of life in which God is working out a purpose in our life and in, in the world. And I would notice just before we look at some of these, and a second thing just to observe, this is not a list of things to do. This is not a list of things to do. It's a rather a description of the inevitable events of life. These things are inevitable. Not everyone is inevitable in each person's life to the same degree. Not every nation, for example, or person will know war. Some live in a time of peace. Some live in a time of conflict. But it is, it is inevitable in the sense of human experience. Human experience. And we all will find ourselves to fit in there somewhere, somewhere. It's a part of the various seasons that shape human experience with all of its extremes, complexities, and details. And again, what we are to see here then is that they, they fit under God's governance. What are the kind of things then that do? Let's just look at this list. Consider it briefly. He says right at the beginning, there is a time to give birth and there is a time to die. That's the most basic point you could begin with. There's a time where you came into this world, and there is a time in which you will leave this world in death. You are here only for a set number of days. As soon as you were born, in one sense, you could say you're preparing to die. It's an inevitable reality to the human experience under the conditions of the fall. 
And just as you had no choice in the circumstances of your birth, you had no choice in your country or where in whatever nation you were born or to whatever parents or to whatever talents or gifts or opportunities or any of those things, those were determined by God in his sovereign working out of his purposes in life. And the same is true of death. We're well familiar, Psalm 139, many other places. You knew the days that were ordained for me before there was yet one of them. God knew and had determined when we would be born and when we would die. There's a proper time for both of those things. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. He's pulling here largely from, of course, the agricultural nature of Israel and those in the ancient Near East and and many still uh, in parts of the world. There's a time to plant. Every farmer knows that there's a time in the season that you put seed into the ground. There's a time in the season that you prepare the ground uh, to be planted. There's a time when you let the ground lie, where you take out and you let it rest so that it can be prepared at another season to plant again. That's part of the, the rhythm and the cycle of agriculture and of planting and of produce. It's one of the most common practices of mankind throughout the history of the world. He says there's, there's a proper time to do all these things. It fits within the order of creation. There's a, a sense in which some of these two can be seen as metaphors where main idea here is there's a, the agricultural scene, but God uses that to point there's a plan, there's a time to plant and there's a time to uproot nations. Jeremiah speaks of that. There's a time for God to to establish in a time for God to destroy. He moves then into verse 3. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. Within a biblical framework, this most likely recognizes the fact that there is a time for justice that involves taking a life. You could even see some do here a justification for a righteous war. There's a time in which there is, it is appropriate to take a life for whatever reason. Again, though, I want to emphasize that he's not making, these aren't commands to do. He's not getting into an ethical discussion, but saying that this is a part of our experience. There's a time to take a life. There's a time to heal a life. There's a time to destroy a life and a time to preserve it. Again, the point isn't to enter into an ethical discussion of it, but those are both realities of life after the fall. God says in Genesis 9, 6, he who sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. We know that in Romans 13, we looked that there's a time for nations by God's own authority to go to war, and that certainly was part of the history of Israel. We just acknowledge, he is, that both of these fit within to God's governance, again, of creation and human experience. He says in verse 4, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. All of us know that sadness and joy are a part of the experience of life. We all know that. We know what it means to mourn the loss of a loved one. We know what it means to be sad at the disappointments and the discouragements of life. But we also know what it means to be blessed and to have God's mercies flood into our lives and to have times of provision and times of blessing, even many when we don't even expect it. And he brings to us such tokens of his kindness. There is a time to weep. Scripture tells us to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. There's an appropriateness about both of those reactions to all that we experience in life. 
Reminds us of the promise that the time is coming when he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more crying, there will be no more mourning. But right now, we know those. We know those. It's the right reaction of the soul to sin in creation and to what sin has brought in corrupting God's good creation. And yet, it's not the final word because even in this time, as we anticipate the final doing away of mourning, he says, but there's also a time to laugh and there's a time to dance. There's a time to celebrate and there is a time to rejoice. There is a time to experience the the goodness of God and his deliverance to us of our troubles when we cry out to him. Actually, I read this this morning, and I thought, oh, that fits. In Psalm 30, David says this, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, my helper, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth, and you have girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. He was mourning. He was threatened. He was sad. God delivered him. He was dancing. He was rejoicing. He was hopeful. It's a part of life. He says in verse 5, to throw stones, to gather stones, there's a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. Now here it gets a little bit more interesting. There's a variety of uh, interpretations on this and ways to understand it. Drawing from the Midrash, which the Midrash is uh, an extra Jewish work that in in essence it either, sometimes it produced uh, sermons or like homilies or gave exegetical notes on the Jewish scriptures on the Torah primarily. But anyway, in the Midrash, uh, the Jews took this uh, as a reference to sexual relations, actually, that there was a time to be sexually active and a time to uh, refrain from that, kind of like uh, Paul in Romans, or 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's one interpretation. I don't quite get there, but uh, that's how the Jews understood it. A second interpretation, that's how Augustine actually understood it as well in some of the patristics, interestingly. The second way to interpret it is this, that drawing from the similar use of verbs in other places, one suggested that it refers to the accumulation of wealth or the loss of wealth. And so embracing or shunning wealth also would go with that. But mm, that seems a little bit more far-fetched as well. Probably the best way to understand this, then, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, is probably this, that a time to... Uh, gather stones is to remove them out of a field. God uses this as an illustration of how he prepared Israel to put them in the land in Isaiah chapter 5, 2. He cleared the land for them. They're speaking of the land of Canaan, the land of promise. He made it ready for them, a fertile soil, a fertile place for them to flourish under his providence and under his covenant. And then the uh, time to throw stones most likely then refers to what is mentioned in 2 Kings 3.19 and 25, where you put stones into the field of an adversary. And then in concert with this, there's a time to embrace and friendship and relationship and closeness and a time to shun embracing. I think what came to my mind as well, there's a, there's a time, one example of that then is, there's a time where we share the gospel and there's a time where we don't throw our pearls before swine. There's a different time for all of these seasons. The general point is is that there's a time for friendliness and affection and there's a time for opposition and avoidance. Different situations call for different reactions. Verse 6, he says, there's a time to search and there's a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away. 
Now that shouldn't be too big of a surprise. Anybody who's ever moved or cleaned out a closet knows that that's, that's uh, something that you wrestle with, especially if you're married. You know, should you keep it or should you throw it away? And lively and fun discussions can sometimes come out of that. But that's simply what he's saying. The more general point here is, is this, that sometimes the search must go on for something that is valuable to an individual, and then sometimes we need to let it go. We need to let it go. There's a time to search, and there's a time to give up as lost. There's a time to keep, and there's a time to throw away. There are times when we should hold something close, when we should hold something tightly, when we should keep it to hang on to it. And there's other times when the best thing to do is get rid of it and put it out of our life, to get it out of our possession. There's a time for both of those. In verse 7, he says this, there's a time to tear apart, and there's a time to sew together, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. And most likely here he has the idea of mourning, the idea of, of sadness and grief that overtakes someone. In the Old Testament, a common way you remember when there was grief or repentance, what did they do? You know, they ripped their clothes. And what did they have to do after they ripped them? Sew them together, right? <laughs> Mend them back. And that, that likely is the idea here, is that there is a time of grief, there's a time in which we tear apart uh, even our garments, and a time then to sew them back together and to mend them when that grief has passed. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak as well, a time where the situation, even of grief or of trial or of an intense situation, requires that we open our mouths and we speak words and at times where wisdom directs that we would be silent. There's a time for each of these and wisdom directs which to know, which to do at any time. Look at verse 8. He says, there's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And really, this conclusion then captures, in one sense, the most intense of, of it all, the most extreme experiences of human emotion and human activity. And the acknowledgement here is that there's a time for both of them, for love and for hate, in fact, love and hate are inextricably linked, whether we might be shocked by this kind of language. What we hate and the intensity of hatred that we have for something is commensurate with what? How much we love it. How much we love something. If we intensely love something, if I intensely love my family, then I intensely hate everything that threatens it. God intensely loves righteousness and he intensely hates sin. He says there's things that I hate. In Proverbs 6, he lists them out. He hates those things which defame his glory, which attack his son, even though at the same time, he himself unleashed his great wrath on his son to demonstrate his love and his willingness to forgive those who have offended him. But even in our own experience here, he speaks about there is a time to love and there is a time to hate and there are things that we should hate. We covered that when we looked at the imprecatory Psalms if you remember several months ago. This is the, to love then is the highest expression and demonstration of God's image in us. To love him and to love his image bearers is the whole summary of the law and the prophets and, and the very essence of spiritual life. But it's equally true to say that to hate is one of the truest expressions of spiritual life. To hate all that stands in opposition to what we love. To hate those things that God hates and to love those things that God loves. He says that hate, he would match, parallel with that, is there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. 
peace is the desire of all men, but it is necessary that some, in order to have peace, it requires that in this side of heaven that we go to war. We go to war to defend peace. We go to war to defend the lack of hostility and the oppression of men and the evils that would come upon us otherwise if we didn't stand up against it in opposition. There's a time for both of these things, and God is sovereign in governing all of it, a time for war and a time for peace. This is a side note uh, with that. We might, we might struggle with that some, to say there's a time for war. We have Christians who would say they are pacifists, that there's never a time for war, but there is. There are those who say there's never a time in which God would allow even the persecution on an, at another level of his own, but there is. Suffering is a part of God's plan. And there's a time for that. There's a time even in that context, in the, in the big scheme of things, for God to let his church be purified. And we won't go there. It's beyond our purposes. But Revelation 2.10, he says, you're going to be thrown in prison for 10 days, but you're going to overcome it at the end. You're going to overcome it at the end. In Revelation 13, 5, he's going to give authority to the false beast or to the beast and the false prophet to destroy for a period of time, for a period of time, after which, once the destruction is over, God will bring him to account. There's a time for these things. There's a time for these things. Now, as noted earlier, again, these are descriptions, not prescriptions. Proscriptions, they're an honest account of human experiences as a whole, and when you look at the big picture as a part of the sovereign purposes of God, and although human responsibility plays a role in each of these, nations decide when to go to war, we decide how to express love and hatred in various contexts and when it's appropriate to do so. But ultimately, what Solomon is emphasizing for us here and what we are to see is that God is the one who is governing these things. God's sovereign purpose is the ultimate determining factor in the time and the consequence and the duration of each of the happenings of life. And you know, this is really illustrated most beautifully and perfectly in the life of Christ himself to kind of give us a, a big picture. And we'll come back to some of this at the end. The life of Christ stands as a supreme example of God's governance over his creation and the timing of all things. There was a time for him to be born at the proper time in Galatians 4. What does it say? God sent his son into the world to be born of a woman. There was a time for that. God knew exactly when that time was. It was predetermined before the foundation of the world. And at the proper time, Christ came into the world. Christ lived his whole life as a man on earth under the, in the full experience of humanity, living obediently under the Father's timetable. He says, there is work which you have given me to do, and I have accomplished it. I've done that work. Whatever God had laid out for him to do, he was obedient to it. He knew there was a time for all things. There was a time he knew for his death. The disciples wanted to prevent it, and others did, but Jesus says, for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. The Father said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. Jesus, you'll remember, at the Last Supper, knew that his time had come, that he had come forth from the Father, that he was going back to the Father, and what did he do? That understanding of God's sovereign purposes in his life caused him to lay aside his garments, prepare, dress himself as a servant, and go and wash the feet of his disciples to love them and obediently because he knew that he was giving his life up. 
There was a time for his resurrection. He told them repeatedly, after three days, I will be raised from the dead. There's a time for that. There was a time for his ascension. He told the ladies, Mary Magdalene and others, he says, I ascend back to the... uh, to my father and your father, and I ascend to my God and to your God. There was a time for him to be on earth, and there was a time for him to return back to the Father. And as he returned to the Father, there was a time for him in this age to build his church, to bring in the fruit of his saving death and resurrection. There's a time for that, and there'll be a time where the building of the church ends, and it'll be a time for judgment. It'll be a time for him to return and to bring all things into account. God having furnished proof, Acts 17, by raising him from the dead, but also a time for salvation where his suffering people will see that glorious day where he returns in the glory of his Father and of all of the holy angels and he establishes his kingdom on earth. There's a time for all of these things. Everything fits under God's timing. Jesus stands as the ultimate example and ultimately the the center of God's purposes in this world. So what are we to do? We are to trust him. We are to trust him, and this is where he's going to take us. In the uncertainty of life, even the chaos of our times, it is important to remember that God remains in absolute control. God, and this one said this phrase, I liked it, God is never threatened by chaos. He's never threatened by chaos. He's not threatened by protests that turn into riots. He's not threatened by organized attempts to disrupt our culture and our society. He's not threatened by the chaos which could bring our nation to its knees if it hasn't already. He's not threatened by the ever-changing world events is the idea. He's not threatened by them. Indeed, he has ordained them. That's the idea. He's ordained them in the big picture of the nations. He's ordained them in the smaller events of our own lives. And he's never threatened by chaos. He is the Lord over it. And in no way is seeing this, even in Solomon's own intent here, in no way does this, does this cause us to be hardened or lessened our sadness or anger at what is sinful and wrong. It doesn't disquell or quell the disquiet that's in our hearts that stirs us up to action, to act. We don't have sort of a whatever will be will be attitude. In truth, what the point is, is that it keeps us from despair and it gives us hope and courage knowing that God, our sovereign God, stands over it all, accomplishing his good. There's a time for all of these things and we're going to experience them, but God is sovereign over them is the idea. An illustration that's helped a lot of people, before we move into the second part, an illustration that helped, has helped a lot, helps, helps me, is the, the idea of a tapestry. You know what a tapestry is, right? It's this big, like, looks... It's not a rug, but you, know, you could see it, and it's by, by uh, thread. It's put together. And on one side, if you look at that tapestry, it's all mangled in a mess. If you go back behind it, if it's hanging on the wall, what does it look like? You'd stand in the back, and you'd go, what, you know, what is this? It makes no sense at all. It's unattractive. It's ugly. But then when you walk around to the other side, what do you see? You see this beautiful, intricate picture. You see this work of art. That is a delight to our eyes. And in a sense, God's sovereignty works like that. 
We live on the side of the back side of the tapestry and we see knots and we see threads going in all different ways that don't make sense and we th see things tied off loosely at the end. We can't figure it all out. This is a part of what Paul, uh, Solomon is recognizing here. But if we were to go back on the other side, we would see this beautiful picture this work of art of what God is doing that's beautiful, that makes all of those threads that seem random to us, what? Appropriate and beautiful in its time, in its proper place. It all fits within to the big picture of what God is doing, though we can't always see it. One has said this, we are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us. Therefore, we can never stand back far enough to view it as our Creator does, whole and entire, from beginning to end. So God sees it. God sees the, the appropriateness of all of these things, and it all fits within this glorious and beautiful and grand picture and design, though for us it is confusing. So what does He say about it? Where does this lead him? Again, he's, he's exploring for us and we're exploring with him and through him how to process all of this. Look at verse nine. He says, then what profit is there to the worker from which he toils? Now, first, that is a, that is a rather negative outlook. Overall, his, his commentary on this is gonna be positive. But, but here is some of that characteristically at times pessimism that sets for us the contrast for him to move to the positive statement. What profit then is there to the worker in all that he does? And this harkens back to the very opening of the point, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, everything just goes on. Rivers flow into the sea. It doesn't give full season cycle and they just keep on going, etc., etc. And everything just remains the same. It's vain. And there's a, a certain hint of that, a flavor of that here. What profit is there? In other words, if God has ordained all of these things, if God is governing over his creation in a way that he's working out his his plan, what profit is it? What do I add to it? What benefit is it from all the hard work that I'm putting in? What difference does it really make in the end? So he says in verse 10, I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men by which to occupy themselves, by which to keep themselves busy as they live life out under the sun and as they live out under his governance of creation under the heavens, under the heavens. So it's a question, again, that continues the idea for the search for meaning. What is gained? What is profited? Well, looking at an earthly trajectory, nothing in one sense, because it's all going to pass away. But that's not the end of the answer. Look at what he says in verse 11. And here we'll go into the second part. We are to trust God in these mysteries of life. That is where they are to lead us. And that's what gives purpose, to trust God in the mysteries of life. Let's unfold that just a bit. Look at verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. That term appropriate there is, is most often translated as beautiful, but here it has the sense of appropriate. It has the idea of right or of fitting. He's made everything right, excellent, fair, beautiful. These are all different ways that you could, could say it, but... But appropriate is a good way. He's made everything appropriate in its time. And this really summarizes then the poem. All of those things which are random to us are actually not random to God, but they're appropriate and they serve an appointed purpose. And yet it leaves man with questions. He says after that, 
He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man would not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the very end. Wow. What is, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean then that God has destined us to live in a constant frustration this side of heaven? Does it mean that we, we have inside us desires that have been implanted by God, but he's assigned us to an experience in this world that's only ever going to lead to frustration and never rise above it? Is that what he means? No. Again, he doesn't mean this to be such a, a pessimistic and dark. Some, some take it that way. But rather, the idea here is this. It is to be humbling. It is to be humbling. It is to acknowledge that while we see that there is a beautiful symmetry and harmony to God's purpose and sovereignty over his creation, and even though the details are hid from us, it's not to leave us in frustration. It's simply to humble us, to point us and lead us back to him. I'll mention this here. We'll come back. But he says in verse 12, I know that there's nothing better than for them to live, than to, better than for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. You know, he captures there in the first part that he said eternity in the heart, that kind of tension that we feel, going back to verse 11. You know, it's, it's reflective really of, of a statement that, again, some of you are going to be familiar with this, that Augustine said, that, that church father of the fourth century said, uh, in his confessions, a really f a famous work, he, do, he says, uh, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There is a restlessness that we have, but it's not to leave us in this restlessness. God has given us a restlessness in our hearts. Let that image of God still be a provoking and real and experienced reality inside of us to move us on to something greater and outside of ourselves. And we realize that there is something outside of ourselves. There is something greater. We have an innate awareness in our hearts that there's a greater significance to life than what we can be seeing. An innate desire to understand how the events of life make sense in a larger scheme. But there is the humbling acknowledgement here again that we're trapped within the confines of finitude. We sense what is eternal, but we're not. We're temporal. We sense that there's something greater, but we have no real access to what that is in the sense of how we can understand how the events of our lives fit into it. One said there is the desire in man to understand the whole. This accounts for all science, philosophy, human knowledge, and as well as theology. What is the whole endeavor of man in those disciplines is to try to do exactly what he's saying here. Try to figure out, man does, what is the meaning to the big picture? How can we make it all fit together? But remember, this is a frustration in one sense that, I mean, man's always finite, even in creation before the fall. But this is, this is really an expression of that sort of struggling and the wrestling that we have that Again, Solomon is providing a living illustration for us of how we can wrestle with that in, a, in, a, in an intense sense, though, under the conditions of the fall. It's, I mean, Adam and Eve had no internal conflict about their finitude, about how limited they were. They had no internal frustration because they were in perfect harmony with God's will, with God, what God had designed for them in that moment. But once sin entered into the heart of man, the desire to act independently of God, inherent in that sin, then this limitation of man, this finitude of man was given its ultimate expression. 
with the curse of death and toil. So now there is a kind of frustration that we experience. There is a kind of tension, a kind of internal conflict, that desperate search of man to figure it all out. There's something to figure out. We know that innately. He set eternity in their hearts. And the best way to take that eternity there is to understand is just as it's written. There are some other ways you could translate it, but is, is that, and that's how he consistently uses it in Ecclesiastes, the sense of something greater, the sense of something bigger, the sense of something larger. But again, it's not to leave us in frustration. I didn't write the quote out, but you can read philosophers of old, particularly those who have an, only a materialist kind of view. There's... Some of you have heard of this. There's a kind of philosophy called nihilism. That is, this, this, everything is just, it's pointless. We live, we die. There's absolutely no meaning in life. Everything is empty. Everything has no value. All the best we can do is simply survive, try to, try to get what, or try to lessen that pain as much as we can. But in the end, it's hopeless. That's where evolution leads you. That's where a thinking evolutionist is ultimately going to go and where they do. But not so with the child of God. That's not where Solomon leaves us. Yeah, there is a, a humbling. There is a limit to what we can know. But look at verse 12 again. He puts it in a positive spin. But I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks and sees good in all of his labor, it is the gift of God. It's not pessimistic fatalism or a kind of determinism that makes all of our efforts meaningless. Again, some see it that way. It's just the opposite. Although we cannot add or take away from God's works, which he'll say in verse 14, we do play a significant part in them in which we make real choices and real consequences. There's always the mystery of sovereignty and responsibility. We're never going to figure all that out, how it works in detail, this side of heaven. God alone can. But they're both true realities. There's no question about that. And so when we come to understand that and leave the mystery to God, we realize that life isn't hopeless and meaningless. In fact, the fact that God is controlling it and rules over it in a larger plan, it gives all of our choices meaning and purpose and our lives a sense of significance. That's the idea in which we can experience joy. Man can't figure out the mystery of God's ways and the specifics of his inscrutable plan, but wisdom learns to enjoy living under his good control of what things and enjoying the good things that God does give us. This reflects back to chapter 2, verse 24 that we looked at too briefly last time. What can a man do? What can, it, there's, what can a man do if there's no satisfaction or ultimate meaning to be gained in the world? If we know that whatever he builds is going to be lost, if we know that ultimately the wise person and the fool is going to die, he says there's nothing else to do but to eat and drink or eat and have enjoyment. To eat and drink and tell himself his labor is good. Because this is a gift of God. Because it is the gift of God. Here he repeats that, but he adds a, a, another nuance to it. And the nuance that he adds here is this. It is the gift of God that God has given for our enjoyment under his providential rule over creation. That's what he adds here. There it was in response to finding that there's no meaning in the offerings of the world by themselves, but there is in seeing them as gifts of God. Here he is saying that there is no meaning if what we want to find in them is some kind of ultimate purpose, but there is in realizing that they all fit 
into a bigger picture, a bigger plan that God is working out in our lives. So enjoy what he gives us. One said this, coalettes or the preachers, carpe diem, remember that, that the, sometimes these are referred to as seize the day kind of passages, is an expression of faith. It's not self-fulfillment. It's not the greedy consumption of experiences and pleasures before oblivion consumes us. That's not what he's talking about. It is rather patient and joyful embrace of daily life as it comes to us as a gift from God. The biblical carpe diem, this writer says, then is not a self-centered response to the uncertainties surrounding life after death, but a worshipful response to God of creation, who is also the God of the new creation and the resurrection. How do we live under the uncertainties of life? How do we live happily under God's providence? How do we live with all of the mysteries that we can never figure out? How do we live with the tension in our heart of what we want to know, but know that we can never know this side of heaven? Do good and enjoy what God has given you. That's the answer. Trust him and live by faith. Joy can be had. And listen, it does not mean then that life, and this is what, he, what we, we must understand, this is in direct opposition to what the world would tell us in a view of reality apart from God. It doesn't mean things are meaningless. In fact, it's just the opposite again. That means we can live with a sense of joy and purpose. We can, and we must, because it's true when we live under, or when we live in faith in God, in fear. They do have eternal significance. Let me give you just one verse, a couple here. Actually, I'm going to unfold that a little bit more, but listen to this. This is the voice of, this is actually the Spirit speaking. In Revelation chapter 14, just, just listen, verse 13, he says, and, and he's speaking about those who have kept the commandment of God and their faith in Jesus all the way to the end, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the loss of their own lives. He's seven in verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. And here it is, for their deeds follow after them. They're not meaningless. What you do in life, how you live your life as a mother, as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor, as a Christian within community, how you do those things is not meaningless. It has every bit of meaning. God is extremely interested in them, in your works, in your life. God is extremely interested in how you respond to the things that he brings. There is extreme significance in everything that you do. We can't fully comprehend his plan, but we can be assured that our lives fit into it in some way, and in such a way that what we do has ultimate significance. That's the point. That's the point. A believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has work that he has designed for you to do. As a matter of fact, you're familiar with this. Well, I won't. Ephesians chapter 2.10 we quote it? You probably could. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What's the rest of it? For good works, which is he has ordained, he has done beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are a Christian, God has saved you to do good in this world. So wherever he's placed you, wherever he's put you, whatever he's given you to do, God has sovereignly ordained that within that context, there is good for you to do. Solomon, in, in, in an old covenant mindset, is saying exactly that same thing. 
Your life is governed under God in all of its complexities and mysteries, but there is good for you to do. It is a gift of God. And it fits within this larger picture. And God, in his mercy, as you work out that good that he has given you to do, gives you enjoyment in it. He gives you a sense of fruitfulness. He gives you a sense of happiness. He gives you a sense of pleasure in those things that he's given to you. It doesn't mean we'll understand. As, as he's already said, it involves pain. It involves mourning, as well as rejoicing and laughter. It involves loss, as well as gain, all of those things. But it isn't without purpose. And again, that's what's really driving the heart here. It's not without purpose, though. Your life is significant. Your life matters. If you are a mom, how you lived your life in those quiet moments where just you and your children, it matters. It's significant. And God says, enjoy those moments and know that they're fitting in to a larger purpose that you can't understand at this moment. When there's tragedy, when there's change and there's loss, we can't see what it means, but the wisdom is do good. See God's mercy in it and and know that what you can't understand, God is working together for good in your life. There's something beautiful that God has done. Even the pain is fitting in God's purposes and program. Even the loss Even the difficulties are fitting in God's purposes and program. I know that everything, verse 14, that God does will remain. And there is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. And that's where our wisdom comes in. He has so worked that we should fear him. You know, we need as human beings, and this is so important, we need, a, we need a big picture. We're kind of big, usually, we're big picture idea. We, I mean, that's, that's where the idea of meaning or significance comes. Okay, I can see my life, but what is the point of it all? What is the point of it all? What does it really matter? And we as, we as people who have this eternity set in our hearts, we need to kind of have, uh, sometimes you'll hear it talked about, if you want a, a fancy word, but, but you'll, you'll hear it, a meta narrative, right? We need a big story, an overarching story of our lives and of meaning and of the universe. We need that and we need to know where we fit into it. And scripture gives us the big picture, again, but not the details, but he does give us a big picture. And when we see this, that we can't see, or for God is so worked that men should fear him, or look back up, is that we can't find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end, but we know that, verse 14, everything that God does will remain forever. He has given us enough at least to work out a framework and to say, I don't know all the details and how it fits in, but I do see that it's going to have an end that is glorious. If we took a step back from what Solomon is saying here and looked at the big picture of God's revelation what God has done from the beginning to the end, God has revealed to us far more than he revealed even to Solomon. Although he had some of God's promises, but he didn't have near what we have. The appearing of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the promise of his coming. He knew that God stood over time and that God was standing over time to work it for his glory out his purposes that had to do with the covenant that was made in his case to Israel. We have the glorious revelation and with greater clarity. Paul says that he brought life and immortality to light and we have with even greater clarity the one who stands over as Alpha and Omega. 
Listen to what he says of Jesus, his, his own self-description. Just listen to this. He says in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, speaking there of the Father. But then he ends it here in Revelation chapter 20, speaking here of Christ, who is one with his Father. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, verse 21.6, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water without cost. He says in verse 13 of chapter 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end. That's capturing what he's saying here, but yet with greater clarity. He's saying God is the beginning even to the end. He's, or he's done things from the beginning to the end. He has a scope. He has a picture. He has a plan. And for us, we know that all of that is summed up in Christ, in Christ, in his work in Christ. That's the bigger picture of God's sovereign purpose in the world. God is working everything to the summation under the administration of Christ. That's Ephesians 1.11. So the details are the mystery, but the grand narrative tells us that what we do for Christ when we have our treasure in heaven uh, will be a treasure that cannot be taken away. And so we can trust him. We can trust him. You know, one, one illustration of this, just biblically, would be as well, uh, Joseph. Joseph didn't understand why his father had blessed him. He didn't understand why his brothers had sold him. He didn't understand why an employer that he served faithfully had a wife who lied against him and put him in jail. He didn't understand why the baker and the cupbearer forgot him. He didn't, couldn't figure all that out in the detail, but at the end, he could look back at it and he could see God was working out a plan. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. God had had already had an intention of something he was working out, not only in the life of Joseph, but how Joseph's life fit into the history of Israel, who fit ultimately into the plan of his bringing the Savior into the world. But Joseph wouldn't have figured all that out either. But that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point. All of those things, though, did fit in. And so Joseph could, at least at that moment in his life, in that little part of it, at least as in terms of preserving his family alive in Egypt during the famine, could at least say, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. He was working out something that I couldn't see at the time, you couldn't see, but God did, and it was good. And it was good. The wisdom that we gain here is to realize in the moment as we can't see it, not looking back, but God is working something good even in the moment even in the moment. And so it's a statement then to encourage us and it's a statement then to humble us. It's really quite humbling too. Again, verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever and there's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away. God has so worked that men should fear him. How is that humbling? Well, I don't think that's a deeply insightful it's humbling because it reminds us, it sets before us the infinite gap that exists between us and God. Everything we do will pass away. Everything God does remains. Every purpose that we establish can be broken, but every purpose that God has determined will be fulfilled. Everything that we want to accomplish, we may not because we're weak and failing. Everything that God determines, he has absolute power to bring about and nothing can thwart his will. We're utterly dependent on God's providence. God is dependent only on his sovereign will and what is the pleasure, brings pleasure to his own heart. God is utterly distinct from us. And so we are foolish to think that we stand in opposition to that as though we would control something, but we have wisdom 
a humble wisdom when we realize that it's good to sit under his purposes. It also encourages us because it encourages us that God's works are complete. His plan is certain and wise. Again, his sovereignty is absolute. And when we live happily under him, then we can have peace and joy. As a matter of fact, we can, in verse 14, not only we can, but the result should be that we fear him. That means that we reverence him, that we trust him. It means that we fear sin because he hates sin. We certainly should fear him in that way. We fear him. Don't fear those who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. There is, a, there is a fear that says God is a judge. God is holy. God is the one who stands over his creation and will hold them all to account. That is a proper fear. And that's true of the unbeliever. It should be to say you should have a fear if you've not yet submitted your life to God. If you've seen the providence of God working in your life and all of those experiences of life, which are ultimately designed that you would seek him. Ultimately, all of these things are so that you would seek him. God wants you to feel that frustration of finding an answer on your own. Why? So that you would look to him to find an answer. God would want you to feel the frustration that you're not in control of your life. Why? So you would look to the one who is in control of your life. God would want you to feel the frustration of your own limitations. Why? So that you would fear him. And if you're an unbeliever, you should fear him if you've not submitted your life to him. Solomon's going to end in Ecclesiastes on that note as well, know that he's going to bring every act into judgment. But we're going to step back even a little bit further and say, again, what Christ said, you should fear him. Why? Because he has the power to destroy soul and body in hell. You should fear him if you are an unbeliever because God has already determined the end of the world. He's already determined He's already determined that he will uphold his righteousness in judgment for all who are outside of his saving grace. We should fear him. Believers should fear him. But because we know, and this is really the point of verse 15. Let me read it before I state it. He says, that which has been done already and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Now, that is, granted, at first glance, a bit difficult. The best, the best way to understand that, I think here, this is where he's getting at, is saying, look, God works on an established purpose and plan. There's nothing, there's nothing new. God has shown throughout the different cycles and happenings of man that he is not only sovereign, but that he always is faithful to his purposes and his word, and he'll work it out. That there is, there is a consistency with how God works in creation, what has already been and, what has, and that which will be has already been. There's nothing new, there's nothing new, but there's a stability, a certainty, an established purpose of God for what God seeks, what has already passed. And the idea there is this, God seeks what has already passed, as God takes the past and he brings it into the future, so God seeks whatever is in rebellion to him that needs to be judged, he brings that to account eventually. Whatever was done righteous, whatever is good, God will bring that forward and give the reward of what is good. But the point here in this, if we go back up to verse 14, so that men should fear him because God is going to be faithful to his word, because God will uphold ultimately his righteousness and his justice, we should fear him. Believers should fear him because there's no sin that will go unaccounted for or unbelievers should fear him because there's no sin he will go unaccounted for, and believers should fear him because their sin has been accounted for, and great was its cost. 
That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 17. If you dress God as father, then what? You should fear him who impartially judges. I'm somewhat summarizing it. You who address God as father while you're on earth, fear him, fear him because he impartially judges. Fear him. Why? Because the cost of your redemption was great, Peter argues. Because you weren't redeemed with things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Fear him. Why? Well, because he impartially judges each one's work. That's, that's what Solomon was saying. Not knowing, of course, the full revelation of Christ, but that God will hold you to an account. Fear him. Why? Because you were, not, you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Solomon couldn't have known all of that glory, but we do. And so this, to God has so worked that you should fear him, is to say God has so worked in this world, both in his sovereign rule over creation, which is meant to seek us through all of the vicissitudes, all of the changing realities of life. God is drawing you to seek him, to fear him, because he who stands sovereign over it will hold all to account. And so it is over nations, so it is over our own lives. So as you experience life, or as you would look at the big picture to know if we're in line with what wisdom is, the question is, are, the, are those things drawing you nearer to the Lord or are they pushing you away? Do trials draw you nearer? Do joys draw you nearer to the Lord or do they draw you more into yourself and your own resources? Wisdom here is that God meant he's worked so that we would fear him. We would draw nearer to him that we would realize that his wisdom is inscrutable, his ways are mysterious, they're past us, but in the end, as we realize that and we live happily under him, we live with purpose and we can live wisely when we, as Paul said, and here we end, to say that we give our lives as an expression of worship, as living sacrifices to God, to living sacrifice, so we might prove what the will of God is, that which is perfect, and acceptable. And that is saying to say that we affirm it within our own hearts that his will is good and it's right and it's holy. And that's wisdom. Let me pray, and I just realized I went a couple minutes over. So, John, my, my prayer is going to be the closing benediction. And, uh, and we'll end our service. So, pray with me. Father, we thank you that we are not responsible to know all the details of your providence. And there's no way that we can take all the mysteries of this world and the ways that you work throughout the history of nations and in our own lives and put it together and make it make sense. Any thinking person and certainly any thinking Christian realizes that there's so much we don't understand. There's so much that we can't explain but you have given us these glorious promises to know that whether we mourn or whether we dance through all of the events of our birth and our death, whether we are in times of war or times of peace, whether we're called to take a life or to save a life, whether we search or whether we stop searching, 
Whatever we do, whatever, whatever we do in response to your providential governance over our lives and over creation, we can know that though we are left humbled and confused so often, you stand as the majestic and holy and wise and good and glorious architect of all that you have made. And the true wisdom and the fullest expression of that is demonstrated in what you've done in your dear son, that in the fullness of time he came, he redeemed, he defeated death, he ascended to your hand, he's returning and his kingdom will be established. And inasmuch as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, we can rest assured that we are called to happily live under your kingdom purposes and not try to figure it out, but just live obediently, live faithfully, live humbly. And Lord, and we can know the blessing and the full enjoyment of what you've given us when we trust you in that way. And Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would grant them to see the futility of life without you, to see that they can keep running, they can keep toying around with the details of life, they can keep living as though they'll have tomorrow. I pray that you'd show them they don't that there is a time of birth and there is a time of death. And if their death comes and they're apart from Christ still, then that is going to be only a time for judgment. So I pray that you would open their eyes to that and by the work of your spirit in them, give them faith and repentance and trust in you. And help all of us to live not controlled by the uncertainties, but confident in the certainty that you are on your throne working for our good. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, you